Hello and welcome to The P-Value, a podcast about science, philosophy and everything in between. The P-Value is an initiative of the Centre for Philosophy of the Sciences at the Australian National University. Prior to the arrival of Dutch explorers to Western Australia in the 1690s, black swans were like unicorns in European thinking, a complete impossibility. Indeed, as early as Roman times, black swans were offered up as the paradigmatic example of impossibility. Every swan observed by Europeans to that point having been white. The inference from the observation, all observed swans are white, to the general conclusion all swans are white, being made by Europeans, whilst ultimately mistaken, reflects a form of reasoning which is common in science today, known as induction. Science relies heavily on inductive reasoning. It proceeds by drawing generalised conclusions about unobserved cases from a limited set of observations. For example, when we carry out an experiment in the lab, we expect to see the sort of regularities that hold there to also hold in the world. More concretely, if we, say, carry out a large-scale human drug trial or set of trials, when we then move to use the drug, or decide it's not worth using, we do that by inferring from the patterns of effectiveness seen in the experimental context to the real world. We expect the real world to reflect what we found in the experimental cases. Hello, I'm your host, Dr. Rachel Brown, and in this episode of The P-Value, we're talking about inductive risk and why some philosophers of science think that our social and political values should influence which hypotheses scientists accept at least some of the time. As the black swan example so starkly illustrates, while inductive reasoning is powerful, it doesn't necessarily lead to true conclusions. The European naturalists of the 1690s had every reason to expect that they were right in their conclusion that all swans were white, given their observations. But unbeknownst to them, they were observing a biased subset of all the swans on Earth. Unfortunately, in science too, we can never be sure we're not in a black swan kind of case, and thus we can never be 100% certain of the truth of any conclusion we come to via inductive reasoning. This is because we can never be sure that the observed instances that we use to draw a more general conclusion aren't biased in some way. Are, for example, the human subjects that take part in a drug trial a representative sample of the broader population? Or are they a skewed subset? Even more concerning, perhaps, is the possibility that even if we're looking at a representative subset of broader society, by pure bad luck alone, we nonetheless end up with a set of results that do not reflect the true features of the world. Just like we can get, by bad luck, a hundred heads in a row when tossing a fair coin, the non-deterministic nature of many of the things we care about in science mean that we can, even with a good test, end up with unrepresentative results, and thus erroneous inductive conclusions. Whilst a stark illustration The black swan case isn't an outlier. The history of science abounds with hypotheses or theories that have been believed to be true, only to be later overturned on the grounds of new evidence. 
that this is the case is a good sign. It shouldn't be seen as a challenge to science. It suggests that we are actually not falling foul of the inductive gap between our evidence and our theory. It would be far more concerning if we never overturned our scientific theories. Additionally, the various things that scientists do to try and limit the chance that they're making erroneous inductive generalizations. For example, carrying out replication studies, using large sample sizes, and testing generalizations that they want to make in different conditions. We often hear our politicians and policymakers extol the virtues of simply following the science. The expectation being that science or the scientific consensus gives us a clear guide to public policy. Unfortunately, the inherent challenges that induction presents means that the story here is really that simple. The move from scientific data to evidence-based policy is complex and inherently risky. Philosophers of science have dubbed this sort of risk inductive risk. It is the risk of erroneously accepting or rejecting hypotheses on the basis of false negatives and false positives in our results. Importantly, inductive risk isn't just a purely theoretical concern. Because of the practical implications that science has on our everyday lives, inductive failures can have very real social impacts. For example, When we make the inference from the success of a drug trial to the broader efficacy of a drug, we make an inference which will have impacts for human health and well-being. If our evidence has falsely indicated that our drug is effective, a false positive finding, then patients can be prescribed an ineffective drug. In such cases, they incur side effects without any benefits along with ongoing suffering. They also incur the opportunity costs of not taking some other drug that might be effective. This can have dire consequences for some diseases. In the converse, if we get a false negative result, we can also end up discarding potentially beneficial treatments because we think that they're not effective. It's tempting to think that the internal epistemic or constitutive values of science Those associated with acquiring true claims, such as simplicity and accuracy and so forth, can solve the problem of induction. These values should be able to tell us what the appropriate evidential threshold for accepting or rejecting a hypothesis is. Unfortunately, however, as US philosopher Helen Douglas points out, this isn't so. While these epistemic or constitutive values can help us assess how strong our evidence is for a theory or claim, they don't tell us whether the evidence is strong enough to make a claim at a particular point in time. This might sound strange, but think again about the drug trial case. Whilst we can do a statistical analysis of our data and get a p-value or probability value of less than 0.05, which tells us that there's a less than 1 in 20 chance that our results showing that the drug is effective are due to chance, Our analysis doesn't tell us whether this should be the threshold for acceptance of the theory that the drug is effective. While the threshold for statistical significance is often given as a p-value of less than 0.05 in stats classes, different fields actually have different conventions regarding what is the required level of statistical significance for acceptance. The threshold is set by weighing up the costs of erroneously accepting or rejecting hypotheses on the basis of false negative and false positive results, and the costs of getting more fine-grained data. In some fields of physics, 
the standard for statistical significance is far higher than in most biological sciences, requiring p-values less than or equal to 0.001 rather than 0.05. In part, this is because of the sort of phenomena being studied in these physical sciences and the ability to get very clean results. Importantly, it is not epistemic values or constitutive values that are doing the work here, but human contextual values relating to our tolerance for risk. The sorts of values at play here relate to our pragmatic social and ethical interests rather than our internal epistemic values. So while we can set our standard of evidence at a p-value of less than 0.05 simply by conventional fiat, this is arbitrary. And there is no non-arbitrary way of establishing what counts as sufficient evidence for accepting a theory that is purely internal to science. Rather, we have to consider the context of use for the information being generated by science. If we accept the idea that our epistemic values only give us access to the strength of our evidence, but not where our cutoff should be for theory acceptance, then we have to also accept that social and ethical values are an unavoidable part of science, particularly in our practices of theory acceptance. Heather Douglas argues forcefully that not only do values influence science in this way, but that they should, and furthermore that scientists have a responsibility to transparently use values in their scientific practice. Let's turn to this argument now. The pandemic has highlighted the central role played by science and scientists in guiding societal decision-making worldwide. It is this role that has motivated Douglas, among others, going back to Richard Rudner in the 50s, to argue that scientists have a special responsibility when it comes to what threshold they have for the acceptance or rejection of a hypothesis. When any member of society makes a public claim, they bear some responsibility for considering the consequences of that claim. For example, someone yelling fire in a cinema without due justification for thinking there really was a fire would be considered reckless and irresponsible. By the same token, someone not yelling fire until it was licking at their toes would also be considered irresponsible for being overly cautious. Scientists, as members of society, bear this same sort of responsibility when making public claims about theories and their acceptance or rejection. Failing to warn the public about a possible health risk, despite good evidence, is considered irresponsible. Similarly, giving a warning of a health risk without due evidence is also considered irresponsible. Now, many philosophers of science argue that scientists bear an even greater responsibility in this domain than the general public. And this is because of the special role that science and scientists play in society. Scientists are experts in their fields, and they're seen as an authority in the eyes of the public and public policy makers. This place in society carries with it a responsibility or duty of care. Consider, for example, the controversy surrounding the announcement of the 2020 COVID-19 pandemic and all of the public health interventions in the ensuing months. There's been a huge amount of pressure on scientists to be right all the time, and there's been a great deal of acrimony directed at those considered to have been too gung-ho in accepting or rejecting hypotheses, alongside those who've been considered too cautious and thus to have delayed implementing useful public health interventions. 
As this case illustrates, this stuff can be really high stakes. Douglas, Rudner and others argue that science itself doesn't give us the tools to solve this problem. Purely epistemic reasons do not give us a threshold for acceptance of theories, and thus there's no responsible way to set the trade-off between false positives and false negatives other than by appeal to non-epistemic costs associated with acting on different types of error. In some cases, this won't be very challenging. Those working on the origins of the universe, for example, can typically have a very high standard for theory acceptance because waiting for more data bears no social costs. Those working on a vaccine during the early days of a pandemic are not so lucky. Waiting for a very high standard of evidence can cost human lives. But so too does implementing an ineffective health intervention or one that results in an unnecessarily large number of injuries or costs. It's our social and ethical values which then come in to decide our evidential standards in such cases. And indeed, it's totally acceptable and nigh on necessary for them to do so. This seems like a really reasonable move, but involves a rather counterintuitive result. Effectively, it's saying that our social and ethical values should determine which scientific theories we accept or not. It appears to go against everything we typically hold to be important in science, the so-called value-free and objective picture of science. For some philosophers, those taking Rudner and Douglas's sort of line and arguing for essential and unavoidable role for ethical values in theory acceptance have gone too far. Ernan McMullen and Richard Jeffrey, for example, argue that we can't expect that scientists consider the social and ethical consequences of erroneously accepting or rejecting a theory. To do so is to impinge on the integrity of science and the essential importance of impartiality and disinterestedness in good scientific practice. Rather, they say, scientists need not solve problems of inductive risk at all. They should simply report epistemic probabilities. This seems too simple, however. Scientists don't just do analyses and report results. They offer interpretations of those results, an interpretation that requires specific knowledge and expertise that only scientists have. If we just make it the case that scientists report the data without giving thresholds of acceptance or discussing whether or not we should accept a theory, then we're pushing the bump in the rug onto public policymakers, who arguably are less qualified to be making the claims about what we should and shouldn't accept. One possible reply to this objection is to simply say that Douglas, Rudner et al. are not making a claim about what should happen in science. They're making a claim about what is actually already happening to some degree. This seems like a fair response. That the acceptance threshold of P is less than or equal to 0.05 is often not understood to be a mere convention by working scientists, public policymakers and the lay public alike is clearly a problem. Moreover, it's a problem that is only made more pressing by the potential costs that can be incurred when we make bad decisions about appropriate thresholds. In this light, Douglas et al. are pushing for a major rethink, not only about theory acceptance, but how we view science altogether. What do you think? Do you think that values have a role to play in science? You've been listening to The P-Value. The P-Value is an initiative of the Centre for Philosophy of the Sciences. I'm your host, Dr. Rachel Brown. See you next time.